the Bible um, to to the book of Colossians, chapter 4. Colossians chapter 4, and we're going to begin in verse 15 today, but we're going to be looking at the last three verses of the book of Colossians. And the title of my sermon is Last But Not Least, Colossians 4 verse 15. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans. And see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. And say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hands. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you once again for this wonderful privilege we have to worship you in spirit and truth. We thank you, dear Jesus, for the salvation, O Lord, that you purchased us with your blood, that we have redemption in you, that the promise of eternal life is a very real thing that we can can put our hope on. We, We bless you, O Lord, for you have called us to yourself, you have sanctified us, and you will glorify us. And Lord, in the great joy of our heart, we pray now that you would, uh, with your spirit, illuminate the passage before us, give us wisdom and understanding and the depths of knowledge of the word. We pray, O Lord, that we would apply what we hear today, and that, Lord, even in these final details of an apostolic letter, that we would see your will revealed to us, that we we would, Lord, just mind some nuggets of truth, apply it to our soul, and that it would sit with us well today. We thank you, Lord, for your word. It's eternal, it's powerful, and it's everlasting. It's infallible, inerrant, and it is food for our soul. I ask now, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would enable me to speak forth thy word, anoint my lips, my heart, my mind, use me as a vessel of truth to declare your word in Christ's name. Amen. So, here we are today, and I am, I am very thankful. What a, what a blessing. Good weather, a good turnout, good friends, good fellowship. We are here under the pavilion. And while we are celebrating today, in one sense, the unofficial beginning of summer, we are also drawing the book of Colossians to a close. We are concluding our study in the book of Colossians. Uh, we have been in this book for quite a number of months. It's probably been one of my favorite series I've ever preached through, um, and I've been really blessed um, to go through this. I mean, when you think about from chapter 1 on, we see Christ at the center of Colossians. I mean, chapter 1 just came right out of the door with a focus on the preeminence of Jesus Christ, who is the head of the church, who is the, the one in whom is all glory and honor and power, who's made the world and everything that exists in it. For his glory, we, we get to chapter 2 and we see that the very thing that enables us to overcome heresy and false doctrine and the vain philosophies of this world is Christ, who is the treasure of wisdom and knowledge. And it's in him who is the, the hope of glory. He dwells in us. Chapter 3, 
gives us what that life looks like in Christ and how we live a holy life, how we live a Christ-like life through the power of the Holy Spirit. And then in chapter 4, we finish with some final greetings and instructions and some of the details that we look at sometimes and just overlook. Now, as we look in these last few verses, I want to just show you where we picked off last time because we, last time we were looking at Paul giving greetings to the church of Colossae from those of his missionary team, from Luke, from Demas, uh, from others, and reminding the church that Tychius and, and Onesimus is coming to deliver the letter. There, there's a, a sense of instructions and greetings from other fellows of the team. But now Paul gives his own personal greetings to close the letter. This was a personal letter Paul wrote to the church. It wasn't just written in a sense of, of dryness, but there was a deep sense of love and care and commitment to these people. And even though he never met them, he prayed for them, as he said earlier in chapter 4. This is a man who was uh, uh, understood that these were God's people and he cared about their well-being. And so what I want to look at is three points today, the three very simple points. And... And they tell us a lot, not only about the church of Colossae, but it tells us a lot about church in general. It tells us a lot about our life and, and the basis of all that we do as Christians. And so I've got three simple, three simple points. Number one, a house church. Number two, we're going to look at a missing letter. And number three, to remember his chains or to remember the chains of Paul. There are three very simple points, three very simple uh, uh, um, nuggets of truth that I want to draw out here and bring out the implications. The first one is a house church because it tells us in uh, chapter uh, 4, verse 15, it says, Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. And so the first thing we see here is Paul's giving these greetings. He's not only giving greetings to the church at Colossae, but to the church of Laodicea. Now, as I said in, early in my introductory uh, sermons in chapter 1 and whatnot, we see that uh, Laodicea, Hierapolis, and Colossae were all within maybe 10 to 20 miles of each other. And they were not far from Ephesus, which was the capital of Asia Minor. So there was a shared culture. There was a shared common bond among these churches. They shared uh, um, uh, ministers. They shared resources. They shared God's word. And so these churches had a tight relationship with each other. And I think that this lays out one of the first things I want to look at, and that is the importance of cooperation among local churches. It's important that local churches cooperate with other local churches of like minds. We ought not to be so independent because I know that there is this mindset sometimes we should just be independent or uh, on our own that we're not in cooperation with other local churches. Baptists tend to be very individualistic, right? Unlike Presbyterians, which are part of a greater session and part of a bureaucracy of churches, Baptists tend to be independent and autonomous. That's part of our belief system. We believe in the autonomy of the local church, that each church should have its own elders and deacons and operate autonomously, not giving an answer to a hierarchy or to another church. There's good and bad with that. One of the bad things that Baptist churches tend to operate on their own. They tend to be too individualistic and they, they cut off fellowship from other churches of like mind. And that ought not to be. And so Grace and Truth Church was planted over 20 years ago by North Shore Baptist Church. 
And we still have a relationship with North Shore Baptist Church and consequently all the other church plants that were planted through North Shore Baptist Church, which I don't even know the number now. It's, it, it, there's a network when we get together every other month for a pastor's fellowship, up to 50 pastors meet together and we discuss things that are going on and we cooperate. This is a good thing because what happens is when a church operates on its own without cooperation, there's, there's no life. There's a sense where you're operating in a vacuum and in a bubble and, and, and you don't know what's going on in the greater kingdom of God. It's not about me, myself, and I. It's about the greater good of the church. And, and God's church is plural. There's multiple churches where the Holy Spirit dwells and it's our good and benefit to cooperate. What are some of those benefits? Number one, as I said, pastors' fellowships. The ability to fill each other's pulpits. Uh, two, forming a defense against heresy and divisive people. Uh, it, it, it's such a blessing when you have a network of churches that all uh, uh, talk together and work together because sometimes divisive people and heresies float around from church to church. And when pastors and churches know each other, oh, yeah, we know that guy. He came here and started trouble. Oh, he's starting trouble here, too. And there's a sense there's a defense against the heresy against the divisiveness that could, could destroy churches. Clearly that was happening in Colossae because the, the heresy or the, the philosophy that was dividing the church of Colossae was affecting Laodicea as well. Therefore, Paul says, have this letter read in Laodicea as well as Colossae. It also means participation in joint events like we have the old church worship service, fellowshipping, with Christians from other churches, supporting missionaries, sharing resources. These are all benefits that we have from cooperation. And although we are no longer part of the Southern Baptist Convention, we are part of a network of churches from Red Mills up north to Grace Baptist all the way down in Southern Queens uh, to Bread of Life all the way out in Jersey. Uh, we fellowship and cooperate with those churches, and that is a good thing. The second thing I want to point out is that there was of how the church was structured in the first century. Now, it tells us to give greetings to the church at Nymphon's house. Um, now, there's great debate among scholars if this was male or female, but it seems like the evidence is, uh, of textual variance points greatly to um, that Nympha was a female. Uh, and so what we see here is, is, a, is a pattern developing in the early churches where people met from house to house. You see that in Acts chapter 2. Uh, we know that Priscilla and Aquila often hosted a church in their house. Um, we know that Philemon was housing a church in Colossae. He would be the recipient of the letter to, of not only the Colossians, but of Philemon. Uh, obviously, his name is on it. Uh, Gaius had a house large enough uh, to, at least on one occasion, house the whole church of Corinth, Romans sixteen twenty. Three tells us. And so what we, we must understand is that in the early church, they didn't have buildings like we have today. There was no such thing as mega churches. And what the churches did was as people grew and as people became saved, they met from home to home. People that, and only rich people owned houses in those times. So it shows that God was saving wealthy people who had homes big enough to house all the people in the church and they would gather together and they would operate and function as a corporate body of Christ. Again, I said the building doesn't matter. It's the people that matters. The church is made up, 
the ekklesia, the word ekklesia in Greek means called out and assembled together. That's the church. We are the ekklesia. We are the called out ones, called out of the world, gathered together. Where that location is, wherever that location is, is a sacred location. And so what would happen in these big cities where many people got converted, you had multiple house churches. And you probably had a board of elders who oversaw all those little house churches. And then somehow, when they had the ability to meet in a gathering place big enough, they would do so. But this was how the early church operated. Now, there seems to be a movement among evangelicals today to want to recover that house church movement, getting away from the idea of a building and and, and all of the intricacies that go along with it. And there is a simplicity and there is an authenticity that goes with having a home-style church. But I don't think God ever intended it to stay that way uh, because the church would grow, would need bigger facilities, and there's nothing sinful about that. What matters most is, is having the essential components of a local church, and whether that's, and, and that's preaching the gospel. Uh, first and foremost, any church that's a legitimate church must be preaching the gospel and, and committed to biblical expository teaching. Because it's the word of God that builds a church, not people, not programs. It's God's word. The second thing that it must be committed to is having elders and deacons, those who are uh, called to the offices and ordained to these offices that set up the structure and leadership of a local church. And finally, there is uh, church membership, which there is consequently church discipline, those who are in and those who are out. And then the ordinances, baptism and the Lord's Supper. Those four marks alone legitimize a local church. If you have those four marks, it doesn't matter where you meet. It matters that you are a body of Christ and you are in cooperation with other local churches, then God is with that church. I think that's, that for us should be a great encouragement because when we are facilitating these marks, when we're facilitating these biblical mandates, God will bless. And we see this today. All right, we're lucky in the sense that I could come out here in the open and preach. I don't say lucky, we're blessed. We have a church building in down the street that we can meet in regularly and worship. You go to countries like China. You go to countries like Pakistan. You go to countries like North Korea. You cannot do that. You must meet in a house church. You must meet in someone's basement with all the windows closed because if anyone catches wind of what's going on, you're going to jail. We don't realize how blessed we are to have this freedom that we have. Now there may come a day where we may be forced to meet in homes once again. But we're not there yet. So in the meantime, we should be thankful that God blessed us with a building like we have, blessed to be here today. Wherever context God calls us to, we are to just be faithful in the mission and commission that he calls us to. Number two, a missing letter. So we see that, that we, we, we get an idea of the gathering of God's people, the cooperation, the location, and we start to see what the church looks like. Another very important factor to the local church is the preaching of God's word, as I alluded to earlier. But the, as we see here in its, its infancy, in the early state of the church, it, it took a much more different picture, and I'm going to explain to you what that looks like today. So first of all, we see that Paul is referring to a letter 
written to the church of Laodicea. He's saying, listen, the letter I'm writing to you, have it read in the church of Laodicea, in the church that's in Laodicea. I sent them a letter. I want you to read the letter I sent them in your church publicly. Now, again, background. The New Testament canon was not complete. The only Bible that the early church had was the Old Testament. It was, it was what we, you know, the Hebrew Bible. On the other hand, the, the, as the New Testament was being developed, these letters, these epistles were written to the early church with apostolic authority that had not only theological but practical implications for each and every local church. And as you'll see, whether it's the letter to the Corinthians or Colossians, there's an occasion and there's a purpose for each letter. So these letters were to be read publicly. They were to be read publicly in the local church um, and they were to be declared with authority and they were shared among other churches which shows the circulation of these letters meant that the letter written to Colossae was not only for the Colossians. The letter to the Laodiceans was not only for Laodicea. These letters were meant to be shared and circulated to other local churches. Two things I want to bring out here. Number one, what happened to the letter to Laodicea? How come we don't have Laodiceans in our Bible? That's a good question, isn't it? Because if Paul wrote a letter to Colossae, he's saying you need to read the letter uh, from Laodicea. Paul believed that that was very important. He believed that the letter to Laodicea held the same weight and authority as the letter to Colossae. And so therefore, why is it missing? Well, that's a good question. And the ultimate answer is it was God's sovereign purpose for it to be lost forever. While Paul may have thought that it was important and Paul may, it may have carried the same apostolic authority as the other apostolic letters, it was not God's purpose to preserve it and keep it in the holy canon of Scripture. It's that simple. And that reminds us that the Bible ultimately is authored by God. God uses men to and moves in them to pen the scripture, but it is God the Holy Spirit who authors, not only authors, but preserves scripture of what is to be put in the holy canon. It wasn't men who put the canon together. The Holy Spirit put canon together, and it was men who were moved by the Holy Spirit and obedient to the Holy Spirit who gave us the canon of the New Testament. Sam Storm says this, God sovereignly arranged for the disappearance and destruction of the letter to the Laodiceans. In his infinite and gracious wisdom, he determined that the content of those epistles was not essential for the life and faith of the church beyond the first century. Ultimately, we must trust in divine providence and believe that God has preserved for us everything that is necessary for a life of truth and godliness. Now, I think this is important because there's always going to be people putting forward other books. Several years ago, The Da Vinci Code was very popular. It was a book that was a bestseller, and it was all based on an ancient Gnostic heresy which gave focus to the book of Judas, an apocryphal book that does not belong in the New Testament, but those, the proponents of the book of Judas said it does belong in the book of, of the Bible, and it was the ancient Roman Catholic uh, dictators who kept it out. And so therefore, this is what undergirded the Gnostic heresy. We have to be very careful and trust the process 
that God is providential, superintending, preserving his word, and keeping his word together. Matthew 5.18 tells us this, I say to you, until heaven and earth have passed away, not one iota, not one dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. The Bible says in Isaiah 48, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God will stand forever. Anything that God wants us to know for our life and faith, he has given us. God didn't make a mistake or lose one of the books of the Bible in the process. He is completely sovereign over the church. He is sovereign over the maintaining of his word. And and we who have a spirit will acknowledge and know what his word is. There's another aspect here that's also important. That is the public reading of scripture. You see that this, the idea that Paul would ask for his letters to be read in public indicates to us that he believed that he was writing scripture himself. And the tradition of publicly reading scripture goes way back. It goes back to the very beginning. It goes back to the book of Exodus, chapter 24, when Moses read the book of the law to the whole congregation of Israel. The same thing happened in Deuteronomy 31 when they renewed the covenant. And in Nehemiah chapter 8, when they renewed the covenant after they returned to Jerusalem. I mean, just think of that. Reading the Torah publicly. You know how many hours that would take? And guess what? The people stood up and Ezra sat down and read. Imagine if it was reversed. You guys had to stand and I sat down. This is, this was a common practice even in the times of our Lord. In various places in the gospel accounts, you read where Christ goes into the synagogue and he read the scripture publicly. And then in 1 Timothy 4.13, when Paul gives instructions to Timothy on how to order the churches, he says, until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of scripture, to exhortation and to teaching. The exhortation and teaching part comes with what I'm doing now. That's the preaching of God's word. But the public reading is something different altogether. Now we're doing that now. <laughs> we do that in every service. We're doing the book of Psalms. We're in Psalm 119 right now. And we publicly read the scripture. We've read through New Testament books. We've read through Old Testament books. Some of the men give commentary. The bottom line is it doesn't matter. It's coming. The word is read publicly. I was blessed years ago. I went to Orthodox Presbyterian Church down in Long Island on New Year's Eve uh, when I was visiting family. And when I was there, we went to their New Year's Eve service. And all they did was read the book of Revelation. The whole service just read the book of Revelation. I just, that was so refreshing. There was no preaching. There was no announcements. There was, there was very little. It was all God's word. And boy, was it a blessing. He even tells us in Revelation chapter 1, 3, blessed is the one who reads aloud. The words are in this prophecy. Blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it for the time is near. There's a great blessing that comes through the public reading of Scripture, not only corporately as we gather as a church, and I think it absolutely should be part of an order of service, but... It tells us the importance and gravity of God's word. It tells us that when we just read the Bible for what it is, God is speaking to us very clearly, very profoundly, and he ministers to us and his word sanctifies us. I would encourage you even at home when you read your Bibles for private devotions, 
Read it aloud. It doesn't have to be quiet. You can read your Bible aloud. That's a good thing. Because as I think you do that, God will speak to you as well. We all know how Augustine was converted. He was reading the pulp of the scripture aloud. When he heard the little girl say, Tell the leggy, tell the leggy, pick up and read. And he picked up the Bible and read in the book of Romans, and he was converted. Very simple. God doesn't need powerful preachers to convert men's souls. He just needs his word to be articulated. All right, thirdly, Paul says, remember my chains. And there's a few things here, um, but I really want to focus on that because I think it's important to see another aspect of the local church that is vital. First, he tells us in verse 17 to, to um, uh, he has a message for Arch- Archippus. Say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. We do not know much about Archippus and there's been much scholarly debate on this passage and what it means. Truth be told, I don't think there's much to examine here other than there was a man named Archippus. He had a ministry in the church. We don't know what that ministry was, but evidently him and Paul had some relationship with each other. And he's reminding Archippus to fulfill what he was called to. This was a man who maybe failed to do what he was called to do. And I think that this is something similar to what we see Paul's charge Timothy in 2 Timothy 4 5. He says, As for you, always be sober minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. You know what I take that to mean? Is that every one of us here has some kind of ministry. It's not just me. It's not, well, Bob's in the ministry, Bob's a minister. That is true, but it is a ministry. Each and every one of us has a personal ministry. How you serve in the local church, how you serve in your private time. God's called us to participate and he's gifted us to to build his kingdom. All of you have a calling. All of you have a ministry. And some of you are fulfilling it and some of you are not. And here's the charge. Fulfill your ministry. Did God call you to be an evangelist? Fulfill your ministry. Did God call you with the gift of discipleship to to pour into young people and to develop them in the Lord? Fulfill your ministry. Did God command you to serve in in, in meeting the physical needs around the church? Fulfill your ministry. Did God gift you to sing and to lead worship? Fulfill your ministry. Did God gift you to preach and teach? Fulfill your ministry. Whatever God has called you to do, fulfill your ministry. The church operates really well when everyone is fulfilling their ministry. Finally, finally, Paul informs the church that he is personally giving his greeting to this letter. He's personally giving his greeting to this letter. Um, he says, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Now, in the ancient world, it was common practice, particularly in Roman times, that when you wrote a letter to someone, you didn't just pick up a piece of paper and start writing. Paper didn't exist yet. What they had was papyrus, and papyrus was in short supply. It was very hard to make, and it was very expensive. So if you wanted to write a letter, it was very costly. Now, because it's in limited supply and it's very expensive, 
you had to fill in every detail of that page. Have any of you ever seen Pastor Paul's notes when he fills out a note for an outline? He doesn't leave one blank space on the page. He makes sure he gets the most of that paper. That's how the books of the Bible were written. Not one blank space could be left because papyrus is expensive and in short supply. And Paul, like many people in Roman society, had to hire a professional scribe to write a letter. You couldn't write a letter because it had to be written in very small, precise, measured letters so that you could fit exactly. Think about it. We have typewriters today. Everything is equally weighed out. When I start handwriting, I'm all over the place. You know, I need, I need a notebook with lines or forget it. My writing is all out of shape. But in the ancient world, these scribes were professional. They wrote the letters down. They could fit an amazing amount of data in one papyrus. No doubt, Paul hired someone here because as the custom in ancient Rome, you would have the scribe write the letter and then you would put your signature on the end to validate it. That was your way. And Paul must have had a very distinctive signature that was well known. And by the way, not only do we see him write this here, but he writes it in all of his other letters because there are also forgeries going around. It was very common in the ancient world to people to write letters that are forgeries. And to sign, you know how you get spam emails sometimes? Oh, this is PayPal customer service. Call us with your account information. There's been some discrepancy in your account. And it looks like PayPal. It has a signature of PayPal. It even has PayPal and email address. But guess what? It's not PayPal. It's some criminal in the middle of uh, who knows where working from behind a computer to steal your information. Forgery has always existed in the ancient world. It was very common to forge letters and forge signatures. So Paul must have had a very distinctive signature. And he says, I am signing off on this letter. This is from me, Paul. And it's saying he has apostolic authority. But it also is a personal letter. It's a letter that tells us that what Paul is writing is not only to the church and, and has a personal meaning, but it is also scripture. As I said earlier, I believe Paul knew he was writing scripture. Peter knew it at the very least. Because the apostle Peter, when he's writing a general letter to the church later in his life, when he's at the end of his life, what does he say regarding the letters of Paul? 2 Peter 3.15 tells us this. Now listen to as I read. Count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters, when he speaks in them of these matters, there are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. So he's saying, read Paul's letters, study Paul's letters, because ignorant and unstable people are going to twist Paul's words just like they do the other scriptures. It seems to me, at the very least, that the Apostle Peter believed Paul's writings were holy scripture. Paul finally says, remember my chains. He's writing this letter from prison. It's a prison epistle. When he was in Caesarea, he was held up for years uh, before he would have his trial in Rome. Remember when he was arrested in Acts chapter 20, um, where the hot Jews sought to kill him, and he was arrested by the Roman government. And he was held basically in, you know, he was in house arrest for a number of years. And he says, remember my chains. 
Remember my chains. And I don't think Paul is saying this so that we may feel bad for him. And I don't think Paul is saying this because he wants to make himself look so, uh, uh, you know, like such a victim. I think Paul is simply saying, pray for me. Don't forget I'm in jail for the sake of the Lord. Paul, even in his imprisonment, is serving God with all his heart, writing a lot of the epistles that are in the New Testament today. And I am reminded that there today that there are many Christians who are in jail for the sake of Christ. Amen. We're here, we have our freedom. We're going to have a good time today. There's a lot of Christians, a lot of Christians in the world today who are in jail for their faith and they're not going to have a good time. They can't go to church. They can't worship. They're probably imprisoned with hardened criminals who abuse them. They probably haven't seen the light of day. They haven't bathed. They haven't eaten well. And they're hurting. Remember their chains. Remember, I think it's important for us as Christians who live in the West, who live in a prosperous country like America, to never forget what other believers are suffering on account of the name of Jesus in other countries today. Don't forget that in China, which is probably where most Christians are in prison in China, are suffering and languishing in communist-led prisons because they express their faith publicly. Don't forget that there are Christians in Eritrea that are imprisoned in shipping containers and roasted to death because of their faith in Jesus Christ. Don't forget in Afghanistan, the Taliban is going house to house and hunting down anyone who would dare to profess Christ as Lord. As I said earlier, we can meet in a building now. We may have to go to a house church one day. Don't think it will never happen here. Don't fool yourself and say, okay, oh, you're just trying to scare me, Bob. No. History tells us that things could change in a minute. Three years ago, when I saw COVID happening over there, I said, that'll never happen over here. And sure enough, it happened over here. Things could change quickly. And I leave you with this question. If the day would ever come where being Christian would cost you your freedom, if you would have to go to jail and give up everything you have for the sake of Christ, what would you choose? Would you choose Christ and to suffer with the people of God and have all the wealth and treasures of the kingdom of God? Or would you choose to keep your freedom and renounce Christ? We haven't had to make that choice yet. But one day we may. And I pray that when that day comes, I believe God will give true believers the grace to make the right decision. You may say right now, I, I, I wouldn't be able to do it, Bob. I wouldn't be able to stand up for Christ. If you are his, when that day comes, God will enable you. But remember what Paul said elsewhere. He says, I may be in chains, but the gospel will never be in chains. No matter where we are, we can always do the work of Christ. He can, the world cannot stop us. Satan cannot stop us. The gates of hell will never prevail against the local churches. Will never 
prevail against Christ's people. God will build his kingdom. God will build his church. Whether here, whether in prison, you can't stop the Lord. That's a beautiful thing. People go to jail and they start prison ministries. I think it was John MacArthur said that a couple of years ago when they were threatening to put him in jail for having service uh, during uh, COVID. He says, let them lock me up. I'll start a prison ministry. (laughs) And so I just encourage you all today as we see all that, let us remember those in other countries who suffer for the sake of the gospel. We We should be mindful of it. We should pray for them and remember those. Today's Memorial Day, right? To remember those who gave their lives for our country. Right? That's, that's Memorial Day. Let's remember those who gave their lives for the sake of the gospel. Amen. Amen. Let me conclude. In these final details, Paul says, grace be with you. God's grace. You know what God's grace is? It's his unmerited favor. Grace is a gift. It means that you do not deserve it. You didn't earn it. And the greatest grace that God shows us is the gift of salvation. It's the gift of being saved from your sin. What does salvation mean? It means this. It means, and I'm going to lay this out in four simple points. Number one, God created us all in his image. We all belong to God. We are, we are his. We are creatures. We didn't make ourselves. God made us. We are We are distinctly above the animal world. We didn't evolve from slime. God made us uniquely, distinctively, and with dignity to bear his image. And therefore, God has a right to rule us. God gave us a law. He has a right to govern us. And because he has a right to govern us, he has a right to judge us. That law was given to us in the Ten Commandments. That Ten Commandments will show us the moral character of God. And that if we want to have a relationship with God, that's the standard we have to live up to. You see, sin came into this world when God made the first man and the first woman. They messed up immediately. It didn't last long. They had fellowship with God. They had unity with God. They had eternal life. But they just chose willfully to sin and rebel against God and, and, and they did what he told them not to do. God said, don't eat the tree. You can eat anything you want in the garden of Eden. Just don't eat the tree. Fruit from the tree of the fruit of knowledge of good and evil. And Adam said, we're going to eat it anyway. God says, surely in the day you leave it, you shall die. And that's exactly what happened. Now, they didn't die physically immediately, but they died spiritually. They were cut off from God. They were cut off from the life of God. And so because they were hit, cut off from the light and cut off from the, the, the life of God, they hid and they hid in darkness. And mankind has been hiding in darkness ever since. We hide in our careers. We hide in, in our success. We hide amongst the veneer of looking good. We hide... Uh, uh, from the reality that we're all going to die one day. That every human being will die and stand before the court of God's judgment. And the Bible tells us that the wages of sin is death. It's not just being cut off from God in this life. It's being cut off from God forever. And that we get cut off when we die, when we are sent to a place called hell. It was prepared for the devil and his angels, not for humans, but it was prepared for the devil and his angels. But because we followed Satan and rebelled against God like him, it is a suitable place for rebels. It is a place where people will curse God and hate God and, and, and blaspheme God forever in anger and their sin and anger and wrath. And God will pour out his wrath upon 
every human being who rejected and disobeyed God. Here's the good news. That's all the bad news. The good news is this. God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son that whosoever would believe in him would not perish. That's what perishing means, going to hell forever. Would not perish, but have eternal life. We could be reconnected to the life of God again. We could be resurrected from the spiritual dead and become new creations in Christ Jesus. Why? Because Jesus Christ, as I read in the confession earlier, he suffered and died and he took our place. He became our sin bearer. The Son of God became man and dwelt amongst us. He lived a sinless, perfect life, the one life that you and I could not live. And when he went to the cross, he took our sins. He took our, all of our rebellions, every law that we broke of God's commandments. He took them on himself and he suffered. And God the Father punished his Son in our place. The punishment you and I deserve all of hell for eternity was concentrated and distilled and placed on the Son in those three hours. Christ died so we could live. But the beautiful thing is He rose again on the third day. Christ is not dead. He is alive and He rules and He reigns from heaven. Christ is King and He rules over all. And one day He will come and every skeptic and every unbeliever And every doubter will become a believer. There will be no more doubters on Judgment Day. But it'll be too late. Now is the time. Today is the day of salvation. Do not put your trust in yourself. Do not put your trust in your good works because you have no good works to offer God. The Bible says your good works are like filthy rags. God doesn't want your good works. God doesn't want your religion God doesn't care how moral you are because whatever you think you are, Jesus is better than you. There's only one way to heaven and that's through Jesus Christ, the Son. Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. Whoever believes in me will have eternal life. There's no way to the Father. You need to trust in Jesus Christ. You need to repent of your sin, repent of your rebellion, turn from your your wicked, selfish ways and turn to Christ. And you will have eternal life. Then the promise of the Lord comes to pass that even though we will die, we shall live forever. You see, Christ tasted death for us so that even though we may physically pass in this world, we absent from the body, present with the Lord, with God forever. That's the good news. That's the grace of God. The grace of God be with you and the grace of God is with us because the grace of God has been revealed from heaven to us through his son, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for this time that we had to um, hear your word. We pray, Heavenly Father, that our hearts would be, O Lord, enlarged for you, that our minds would be, O Lord, just just enamored by you. We pray that the gospel would permeate uh, every aspect of our being. We pray that you'd convert souls here today. Lord, we pray that you would And for those of us who are converted, we pray, Father, that our hearts would just draw closer to you and that this gospel, this good news that we hear never gets old because it's such good news. We enjoy hearing it every time. It refreshes the soul. And I pray we'd be renewed today in our hearts as we consider the blessing we have at Grace and Truth Church as your people gather together to worship your name. Praise be to you, Lord God. In Christ's name, amen.